Welcome to Following the Fire, a podcast for Christians who are rethinking their faith and need a safe place to doubt. As we wander through the spiritual wilderness, we want to find and follow God wherever the pillar of fire leads. And just like God's people in the Bible, we get lost, we miss the point, and we don't have all the answers. But maybe that's okay. We're on this journey together. I'm Nathan. And I'm Steve. Even on my heart. Hey everybody, welcome to episode 47. I am so unabashedly excited about our guest today. When I came across this guy's TikTok account last year, I immediately devoured most of the now 700 videos he has posted. Uh, Dan McClellan is a biblical scholar, translator, and expert in the ancient Near East and the cognitive science of religion. And my daughter has made fun of me for fangirling, quote unquote, about having him on today, but I don't care. Uh, He's got great things to say. But I'm going to stop talking now and let Dan introduce himself properly. Take it away, Dan. All right. Thank you, Steve. I appreciate it. I appreciate the invitation and uh, and for having me. Uh, my name is Dan McClellan. I'm on TikTok as uh, McClellan, at McClellan, and that's a phonetic spelling of my last name that I used when I was living in South America because they don't like those consonant clusters down there. Uh, but it's M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N. Uh, I'm also on Instagram and Twitter uh, with the same handle, and I do slightly different stuff on Instagram, and then Twitter is basically just political stuff. So if you really want to get upset with me, that's where you can go. Um, <laughs> but uh, I live in Utah. I work currently as a scripture translation supervisor for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And people always ask me, what does that mean? And I, it's simple. I supervise the translation of the scriptures. Uh, so all our, our um, Latter-day Saints scripture gets translated into a variety of other languages. So I go find people who may be qualified to be translators and reviewers, interview them, vet them, train them, and then supervise the projects. Uh, and because my specialization is bi- biblical languages, I am our main person for our Bible projects, which are not translated from scratch. We take public domain translations that we have used for a long time that we have preferred and we revise and update them. But uh, my background is in uh, biblical studies. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree in ancient Near Eastern studies from uh, Brigham Young University. Then I went to Oxford for a master's degree in Jewish studies. Went to Canada to a university called Trinity Western University for another master's degree in biblical studies. And then uh, completed a couple of years ago my PhD in theology and religion at uh, the University of Exeter. And people think that means I'm a theologian, but that's just the name of the department there. Your PhD (laughs) is just PhD in name of department. Uh, But I wrote my dissertation there on the cognitive science of religion and the conceptualization of deity in the Hebrew Bible. So uh, I work a lot with cognitive linguistics, cognitive science of religion, conceptualization of deity, conceptualization of scripture, as well as religious identity. Uh, so that's kind of my wheelhouse. That's where I like to operate. And I started, let's see, what is it? It's the 16th. I think it was the last week of March last year that I started my TikTok account. So it really? will almost be, a yeah, it's almost a year um, on the dot that uh, that I started. So it's been, uh, it's been a crazy year, but it's been a lot of fun. I've uh, met a lot of great people. 
uh, been able to do some interviews like this. And once uh, we are in a non-COVID world again, I look forward to meeting some of these folks in person too. I think uh, uh, I think it'd be great to to do some get-togethers and things like that. Yeah, we're not far away, just over the, over the mountains in Fort Collins, Colorado. Oh, Fort Collins, huh? Oh. So uh, you will know, uh, I lived in Colorado for a long time. In fact, I got kicked out of the University of Northern Colorado up in Greeley. Um, I, have, uh, I have been to my fair share of college parties that we need not go into uh, in <laughs> Fort Collins uh, uh, and uh, down in Boulder as well. So uh, most of my family lives in Denver right now. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. Small world. Yeah, it is. And... Colorado is a wonderful place. Uh, in fact, we are going to be there this coming weekend. Go oh, hang nice. out with some family. So, uh, what what made you pick up a phone and go? I think I'll start doing really complicated, critical biblical scholarship on TikTok. Well, I was uh, I have been on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter for a while, and I and you know I'm aware I was aware of TikTok, and every now and then I would see people share stuff from TikTok, and then I started to see people sharing posts that were kind of related to to what I do, and I wondered, is anybody keeping tabs on these people over here on on mm. TikTok? And um, I got an account, and I lurked for a little bit. Uh, basically just wanted to see what this, uh, test the waters a little bit, see what things were like. And there are a lot of great um, folks who are um, trying to get into biblical scholarship and understand it better, and some remarkably insightful people. But it struck me that there wasn't uh, a real credentialed expert there kind of playing referee, as you said. And, um, you know, I, I... tend to probably think more highly of myself than I should. So I thought, hey, I might as well throw my hat into the ring and uh, see what I can do to help not only um, try to combat a lot of the disinformation that is out there, but also try to help democratize access to some of this scholarship, some of this information, because I know there are a lot of people out there who would, who you know, have a desire to better understand uh, the Bible from a devotional point of view, but also uh, folks who want to just understand uh, this information just so they can have a better understanding of the world around them and engage with the maybe the history or the text of the Bible or friends, family, and others uh, who approach it devotionally. Uh, and so I started uh, <clears throat> trying to make videos with this view of becoming a bit of a popularizer of biblical scholarship, making it a little more accessible uh, for folks on TikTok and also combat some disinformation. Uh, and yeah, that was almost a year ago. So I'll have to do something special for my, my one year anniversary. Yeah. I was curious if you had, um, if that has changed how you approach studying the scriptures or looking into things or, or uh, looking at it from a more, like you said, a populist, uh, standpoint. I, I think it has uh, maybe not the way that I approach these questions, but it has definitely brought to my attention uh, a much broader set of concerns and questions. Mm. I've become much more aware of what kinds of questions the general public, at least the sampling that is available to me on TikTok, 
what kind of questions they have, what's important to them, what kinds of worries they have, and, and you know, what kind of biases they have. So I've always just approached my study by just considering what I want to learn about and what questions I have. But now I think I've broadened my uh, perspective, my gaze a little bit in order to, I think, be a little more flexible for uh, the audience that I have on TikTok. So whereas mm-hmm. I, I used to maybe have a little bit more tunnel vision and, and just look at the things I was personally interested in, now when I run across something, I'm like, oh, I've had questions about this before. I know people will want to know this. I better get this book or I better read this article or something like that. So mm-hmm. uh, I think it has, has made me a bit more of a generalist uh, in that regard. And then I am thinking about how to frame things uh, so that it's a lot right. more accessible. Because I have, I can be very, very jargony and technical in my writing. And uh, in fact, I got an award at Oxford for the master's thesis that I wrote. And the person, the chair of the department who got up to um, give me the award, even he was like, I don't understand exactly what the title of your of your thesis means, but here you go. <laughs> um, so... I can be kind of dense that way, but TikTok is definitely helping me find a more accessible voice. Uh, and it is helping me think mm-hmm. about how I would describe these things to a general public audience rather than to other, um, you know, academic nerds like me. And I think that is very helpful. I am grateful for that. Yeah, it forces you to just think of things differently. It does. I think. That, yeah, so, I- I'm interested in kind of what some of those questions are. What are some of those questions that you get the most that maybe as a biblical scholar, you know, that's not what you would have been uh, dis- discovering in class, but that the average TikToker is asking, um, uh, cares I about. I found that a lot of the things that, that tend to pop up are things that relate to the relationship of uh, critical, skeptical uh, critical thinking people to family, their own past in the church, church institutions. So things that have to do with um, their own sense of self-worth, uh, the idea of an afterlife, what kind of uh, reward slash punishment scheme do the scriptures actually promote, if any. Uh, and a lot of things that have to do with some of the hot-button identity politics that are going on today uh, with homosexuality uh, in the Bible, the question of, you know, is there a concept of hell, of eternal divine punishment? People want to know about where the Bible came from. The process of canonization is always a a hot topic. Uh, Did Jesus exist? Uh, Mythicism. I've always known that mythicism was was something that for some reason seems to stick around, but, uh, but that... There are a lot of strong feelings about that. Uh, a lot of things that I feel like the general public is still aware of data that is very outdated, but sticks around because it serves the interest of identity politics of one group or another, either advocating for the interests of a conservative religious position or advocating against those interests. Uh, and so in that sense, they're, they're kind of battleground issues uh, that most people are dealing with. Some of this stuff is literally 19th century 
like people haven't been making these arguments for over a century and people are still bringing them up. Yeah, that kind of gets into the data data over dogma thing that you you talk a lot mm-hmm. about. Um, can you explain what what that what that means? Well, when I when I got into things, I wanted to frame my approach, my channel, um, the product that I was putting out there, as um, a place where you could find just the data. Now, I'm obviously I'm interpreting things as well, but I want to provide the data in a way that isn't obviously in the service of some group's structuring of power or another. Uh, And so I get a lot of people who will start following my account and I get the impression that they think I'm on their quote unquote team and I'm not really on any teams. Mm. And so there will always be people that will say, you know, I thought you were different. I thought you felt this way or that way. And, And I have to clarify, I'm just here to share the data. And if you think that the data is going to support your team unilaterally, you are woefully misguided. Uh, sometimes the data sides with a more conservative perspective. Sometimes it does not. Sometimes the data doesn't help anybody. It's just kind of out there and both mm-hmm. sides are clearly, um, you know, too deeply embedded in a dogmatic position. And so um, from I can't remember where I, I first started saying it, but I, I started saying if I have a motto, it's that I'm about data over dogma uh, because dogma is not... Dogma is usually rooted in identity politics. And uh, from my work in cognitive sciences, I, I get the distinct impression that identity politics have a lot to do with a lot of the arguments and the discourse that takes place in the public. And so I want to be separated from that. And I want to be able to provide the data um, instead of support dogmatism. That, that really reminds me of, I think we, as lay people, I'm a lay person, we understand maybe physics, if you're going to study physics, that there's some certain assumptions you have to bring to the table. If you're going to set up an experiment, um, there's certain things that you kind of have to assume or mm-hmm. that you're, you're not going to bring into the table. And then at the end of it, you get to use significant figures to report how certain you were in your result. And then somebody's going to be able to replicate it. Yeah. When you talk about history or literature or you know, adding more and more complicated subjects like that, like religion or other cultures, what are some of the maybe assumptions that you kind of have to bring to the table as a critical scholar that maybe I wouldn't know about or that a lay person kind of may not be bringing to a devotional text? A lot of what we do is try to avoid a lot of the assumptions that that we might kind of intuitively bring to the question because I, a lot of people talk about proving things and in, in history and linguistics and um, studying texts, there is remarkably little that we can prove. We deal with weighing probabilities and saying this is more likely than that. Uh, and if we can actually get to the point where we're actually proving something, that's, that's pretty rare. But a number of uh, assumptions that we have to deal with uh, relate to you know, the possibility of supernatural stuff. This is something that that I get all the time, uh, particularly in debates about things like the resurrection, where people say, well, when you look at all this data, it's um, it's so much more likely that, that Jesus rose from the dead than anything else. It's like you can't really add something that is physically impossible to a set of possibilities and treat it as if it is on the same 
uh, level as, you know, somebody had a delusion or somebody uh, just really wanted to believe something happened. Uh, and that was a, that's a, an issue I've gotten into apologists with a lot because there is a notion that the assumptions of the supernatural that are associated with uh, the miracles of the Bible are on the same level as the assumptions of naturalism, that things are uh, follow a you know a set of rules that we can for the most part detect not always perfectly but we're putting together a much better uh, view a much better perspective on what all these rules are and a lot of people talk about a naturalist uh, you know a set of assumptions from a naturalistic point of view and there are definitely things that we have to assume related to history that, you know, I wish we had a piece of paper we could rub on a text and it would turn pink and then we would know, well, this means this and not the other thing. Uh, but we're working with a limited data set. We're working with theoretical frameworks that we've tried to develop from the data. And we do our best to try to keep dogmatism out of that, to try to keep assumptions out of that. Uh, but we're humans, and you know, in a century from now, people are going to look back on on how we study ancient texts or the archaeology, and think we were a bunch of rubes, because uh, they're going to have <laughs> they're going to have much more refined uh, theoretical models. But they're always going to be theoretical models. And there's a saying that uh, all models are wrong, but some of them are useful, and. <laughs> and that's basically what we're trying to do. We're trying to find the models that are the most useful. And there's always going to be distance between the cold, hard reality and what we are able to reconstruct, what we are able to detect, what we are able to perceive. Uh, but we want to try to keep as much as possible assumptions deriving from authority or deriving from uh, you know who has money or deriving from how I can... Uh, you know, sell more books. We want to try to keep those assumptions out of things as much as possible. And it's difficult. Um, and none of us are perfect at it. Yeah. And, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it, saying data over dogma doesn't mean that dogma is never useful. Yeah. And I've, and I, maybe I haven't made that as clear as, as uh, you know, several months ago, but I've, I've said many times, that's not to say that dogma is a, necessarily a bad thing. Uh, we all live and die based on dogmas. Uh, there's not a human being alive uh, who has ever lived a dogma-free life. They're, they're a part of life. Um, but I want to try to present a channel where we can try to mitigate that as much as possible so that uh, we can produce some, some data that will be the most helpful to the most people. But yeah, uh, yeah. Um, I'm... <laughs> would never claim that I'm entirely dogma free. <laughs> and and I think I've I think recently someone asked me about that what dogmas I had and I and I said you know, probably the one that that I am the feel the most strongly about is all other things being equal I will always give the benefit of the doubt to a less powerful group over and against a more powerful group. So that's a dogma. Like yeah, I run into that one. I would say if, if I am appealing to dogmas regularly, that's probably the one I appeal to most commonly. It's not a bad one. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I have, uh, you know, I've lived, 
Um, I haven't had the easiest life in the world, but so many people have had much harder lives, and I've I've seen. Oh yeah. Uh, you know, as I was a missionary for my church down in Uruguay, I lived down there for two years, and I've seen the kinds of things that you know I had never experienced up here, and that I will never experience. And I came back home, and I wanted to get to know this whole side of America that I was never exposed to before, the side of America that speaks Spanish. Um, and so I did. I made a bunch of friends who didn't really speak much English and had a great time getting to know that culture around me in Dallas, Texas. And it opened my eyes to how much everything here is structured to prioritize my interests over and against theirs. And and I think that really um, changed things for me, and um, so yeah, that's that's one of the reasons I um, if I if I appeal to a dogma every day, it's going to be that one. I suppose if history gets to be written by the conquerors, why not interpret history in the lens of those who are conquered or those who are not in power? That's um, yeah, that's that's the principle of. Uh, People's History of the United States, uh, Zinn's very phenomenal book because those stories don't get told. And uh, I think when we imagine our history through the lens of the conquerors, uh, there's so much that we lose. Yeah, what you're talking about, data over dogma and the the dogmas of specifically the one you're talking about, like the um, oppressed over the oppressor. Mm-hmm. It actually kind of made me think about how I would back, you know, come back to the study of the Bible stuff, how the way I grew up, I grew up in a church of Christ, both Nathan and I did. Mm -hmm. um, and so the, the dogma was so strong. Um, I remember I, I got my degree in biblical studies at Oklahoma Christian University. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, taking like a class on Matthew and the, the professor came in and talked about it like, well, you know, uh, authorship it's definitely matthew and um it, there, some people talk about q but you know that's kind of going away and it, we're you know all this stuff and it's like the realities of some of these things were so important that 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 are so unimportant i should say mm -hmm. that the dogma have ruled all and even when it comes to some of the how we treat people around us if if we feel like the the dogma is stronger than the person next to me, then I'm going to believe the thing I believe yeah. at your expense. Mm -hmm. And it, that that's so hard to pull those apart. It is, and it, and I remember seeing the same thing when I did my um, second master's degree. That was at a, a Twin Trinity Western University, an evangelical school, and uh, I remember I had a one of the members of my cohort there. He had just come out of a an MDiv and like second week of one of our Old Testament survey classes, we start getting into Pentateuchal authorship. And he was like, wait a minute, in my MDiv, they told us that the documentary hypothesis wasn't a thing anymore. And the teacher had obviously, the professor had obviously dealt with this many times. 
But he was like, yeah, that's something that in, in seminaries they misunderstand. Uh, they think the restructuring of the JEDP source critical models means that they're abandoning source criticism and going back to mosaic authorship. And that's just not the case. But it does not get filtered all the way down because those schools, um, you know, they have a certain one way they want to uh, teach their students. And so uh, it gets down to them as, yeah, scholars are abandoning source criticism. And so that rocked this student's world for a couple of weeks, took him a while to, uh, <laughs> to be able to digest that and be okay with it. Yeah. I mean, same thing goes for me. I've, you know, studied, the, I got my degree like 20 years ago or something and was a missionary myself and the youth minister and all this stuff. And it's taken like a decade for me to start kind of processing through some of this stuff. Mm -hmm. It's just so ingrained in you. And then figuring out what to do with the Bible now that it, you feel like the reason you believed it is not as solid as it was before. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. That's and that's something that that I see a lot on on TikTok is I get that question. If it's not all one hundred percent true, then how can you trust any of it? Mm. And that that was never you know I had I had a weird upbringing, um, <laughs> but that was never a, a thought that entered my head. Like that never would have computed for me because I came to approaching the Bible. Uh, as an adult, from what I would consider a mostly critical point of view, and so that was never something that that I was uh, ever uh, that was never an idea I ever had about how to approach the Bible. So I don't I I can empathize to some degree, but it is always artificial. I have never had that experience, um, but I have seen other people go through it, and I, I still remember a, a long conversation I had in the parking lot. Uh, for a couple of hours after a class at, at this evangelical university with a couple of the students from the class where they were talking about, you know, what to do with this information. But then the conversation switched to, and how do we get this information to the other Christians out there? How do we help them understand this? Because, you know, we are paying to come to school to be taught this. Not everybody has that luxury. And so do do we just pretend like we have two different tiers of approaches to the Bible? You've got your your um, academic Christians and everybody else, or is there a way to help other everybody understand it this way? So I, I've, I've seen folks in the evangelical world wrestle with these questions. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's difficult. There's no easy answer. such a a topic that I think we see over and over where there's this even just from a let's say a regular person to a practicing Christian's understanding of the Bible there's a there's a lot of air there's a lot of distance mm -hmm. but then to someone in seminary there's a lot of like that's a complete new understanding of of the Bible and then in actual biblical scholarship and PhDs um, in culture and in language it, it seems like the it just makes the gap bigger and bigger between what you know and what I might know or assume about the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I think that your TikTok probably is 
very much trying to reduce that gap. Um, but what kind of issues do you see that are kind of those common gaps where we're either in the popular culture or even in the religious devotional culture where we haven't quite caught up or where the scholarship hasn't found out the way to communicate back down to us? Yeah, I, I think the one of the ones that I harp on the most is probably univocality. This this idea that the Bible speaks with a single, consistent, and unified voice. I mean, that's really at the foundation of a lot of scholarship, because if you're approaching a text and the notion that a book could have been written by two different, two or more different authors in different time periods is not even on the table, that is going to significantly change what you're able to extract from that text. Um, but mm -hmm. once you allow that, this can't, could be a composite text, the work of two or any number of authors and editors and redactors and scribes over centuries and centuries, that really opens up a, a whole new world to what this text could have meant um, in its different phases. And, and so I think that's one of the biggest hurdles uh, when it comes to talking to folks who approach the Bible devotionally and have that perspective. That's one of the things that does not compute for them most often. And so I think if, if I can help people get over that, uh, I think that's, <laughs> that's the biggest thing. Uh, but one of the things that I've, I've taken from the world of cognitive linguistics, as well as the cognitive science of religion, is, is how so much of what we understand is not a pristine and unfiltered view of reality as it is, but is a construal of data based on conventionalized frameworks and ways of speaking and ways of thinking and ways of organizing knowledge. And this, this took me a long time to kind of draw a bead on. Um, but I use, I, I use as an illustration the concept of truth. When we talk about truth today, truth is an object. You can hide the truth. You can find the truth. You can give the truth. You can withhold the truth. There can be the whole truth. You can have parts, halves, and wholes of it. Truth is an object. That is a conceptual metaphor that we use when we think and talk about truth. We don't think that we're doing this, but we're actually taking this concept, this abstract concept, and we're turning it into an object in our minds. But when we read the Bible, truth is a path. You walk in the truth. You follow after the truth. You have departed from the truth. You need to return to the truth. They didn't think of it as an object. They mm. thought of it as a path because that was the conventionalized way of structuring their knowledge that they used back then. And it seems like such a small thing, but it can make such a big difference in how we interpret what's going on in the text. Uh, and there are, and, and even truth itself, not just how we conceptualize it, but what truth meant. Truth back then was not, is your proposition in alignment with reality? Truth and faith and, and belief and all these kinds of things were about trust. Do you trust this person, this proposition? Not necessarily that it is in alignment with reality, but that it is going to produce the results that are desired. Um, and so there's a, there's a saying from a book. Uh, there's a, a phrase in Latin. I don't remember the phrase in Latin, but 
um, as it goes, uh, is your philosophy true means is your love of knowledge genuine? But then mm. came the enlightenment. And now it means is your belief, uh, is your proposition accurate? Uh, and so there are a bunch of different ways that we construct the world around us in our minds um, that cognitive linguistics, cognitive science of religion, evolutionary psychology, all these other approaches have kind of opened up these different ways of thinking about how we approach the Bible for me that I find fascinating. Um, and, and and I think I kind of... Um, I throw people off a lot with, with some of the ways that I talk about this because it is pretty heady. Uh, but things like religion, the concept of religion being something that developed slowly starting in the um, you know Islamic period and then really taking off with the Reformation and, well, the Renaissance, then the Reformation and the Enlightenment. So to talk about religion in the biblical period is um, an anachronism. They never would have thought of religion as any kind of discrete, separable domain of, of thinking or knowledge or, or cultural practice. And so we distort the Bible when we talk about, well, this is something that's religious. Uh, so that area, I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to present all of this stuff to my TikTok audience without just yeah. <laughs> kind of confusing the crap out of them, which is what frequently <laughs> happens. And this, and this, I, I think, go ahead. I'm, I'm processing at about one tenth the speed that you're talking because you're, <laughs> I'm someone who de deals with like two syllable words and, and lower. Um, but just to bring that full circle. So blowing our minds with uni univocality, I can barely even say it where Maybe you could you could read a text and see the changes or the seams, maybe so to speak. Mm -hmm. But as someone who goes to the Bible bookstore and picks up a bound copy of Capital B, the Bible, mm -hmm. um, and then kind of makes some assumptions about it and what it would mean for it to be true as a Westerner, I think truth is the object. Um, so uh, it would be untrue to have modified this thing from its original source that would be kind of uh counter to, you know if that was a newspaper article that would be a, a some kind of a crime mm -hmm. but true as a plumb line or true as a path um you can follow you could in full pursuit of the truth go into a document as a maybe a rabbi and in, in some period and and make a change or add something to make something and continue that that truth and it reminds me of Harry Potter. Yeah. Uh, um, the first book of Harry Potter is called Harry Potter and the... Yeah, philosopher or sorcerer. Yeah, philosopher or sorcerer. So the original author said Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. Mm -hmm. But some really smart marketing executive in America realized that selling a children's book about wizards to kids... It's going to make a lot more sense to say Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, right? Yep. They they yep. modified the the name in the pursuit of that truth as a plumb line or a path. Like it makes a lot more sense. This isn't a book about philosophy. It's a book about wizards, yeah. right? But ignoring maybe if you're a, a historian, you might know that, I don't know, the history of the actual Philosopher's Stone idea and alchemy and, and what that means. But it's a children's book, so it's actually more true to take this thing 
and modify it for your audience and what they know and and give them a result that they can understand <laughs> actually more true than the original author's intent. It's crazy. Yeah. And and I think there's a degree to which there is a desire to push back against that, to treat that as as uh, relativism, as postmodernism. But I think people would be surprised how much, one, they do that already, and two, how much easier it would make that message to be able to adapt and adopt it to the audiences. So people don't have to conform to the message, but the message can conform to some degree to them. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's an interesting uh, way to frame that. I haven't thought about it in relation to Harry Potter before. You just stick around. Uh, Nathan has some interesting ways to look at things. <laughs> so it, the idea of univocality is huh? something that I think that word, it was the first time I heard it was when you said it <laughs> on these you, TikTok you things. You know what? I don't know where I got it from. I just started saying it several years ago. And um, in academic circles, people are like, yeah, okay. Um, so I was like, all right, it must, it must make sense. Um, it works for me. I mean, <laughs> but it, it seems like it kind of comes along. It's like hand in hand with the concept of inerrancy. I think, I think there's a, a, a lot of truth to that, yeah. And has, I mean, you, you, you seem to know a lot about not just the, some of these philosophical things around religion and scripture, but the history of it. So where did we get this idea of univocality and inerrancy? Is, is that like a development over time or just pop up one day? Or I, I think so. I, I think you see different degrees to which uh, some of the early Christian writers made assertions about the what kind of truth is in the text. Now, now again, their conceptualization of truth is not exactly the same as ours. But I think there was kind of a de facto expectation that the principles that were in the text would always lead to God. So mm. whether or not the text was literally true uh, was not the, you know, whether it was historical, whether it was scientifically true, that was just not in view. But was it true in the sense of, is it trustworthy? And they would have said, absolutely, yeah, unilaterally. And they had different ways to approach it. One of the big issues facing early Christianity was what to do with the Hebrew Bible. Uh, when, mm. You know, you had Marcion in the second century who wanted to get rid of it entirely. But the case was made that we needed to keep it. Uh, and that meant you had to find ways to read texts like Psalm 137 that says, um, you know, uh, blessed is he who uh, takes your young babies and smashes them against the rocks. Yeah. And so they had to come up with a way to interpret that, to make it from God. Uh, and that required new and different frameworks. And so you have a development of a bunch of different ways to approach the text. Um, you had your moral readings, your historical readings, uh, all these um, metaphorical readings, you had Christians coming up with a bunch of different ways to approach the text. And some of them made the text not necessarily historical, but that didn't make mm. them less quote-unquote true. Um, yeah. And and I think this was primarily how people dealt with things up until around the time of the Reformation the and the Enlightenment, because you had a lot of, uh, you had a lot of fighting over what the Bible meant. 
And one thing that happened with the Enlightenment was rationalism. And rationalism was very positivistic. Rationalists believed that you could determine the truth or the falsity or falsehood of propositions, um, you know, in a binary manner. This is all true or all false. And a lot of this mm -hmm. was based on the, um, you know, reviving classical uh, philosophical perspectives, particularly uh, those associated with Aristotle and with Plato. And so one of the things, um, and, and I think I see this a lot today in the way people talk about the Bible, is this notion that everything is a dichotomy and it is either true or it is false. And yeah. that can be, we can establish those or we must be able to establish those for every question that we ask. And I think this is why we have the, the arguments that we do today. And in the 19th century, uh, with the question of evolution and uh, the implications of evolution for things like slavery, mm. made that such an important fight. Mm. And so inerrancy, I think, it kind of bubbles to the surface of all of these arguments as a way to draw a line and say it has to be 100% um, inerrant, no mistakes whatsoever, because to to allow for any mistakes is to is to be on the wrong side of that dichotomy of true or false. Uh, and so I, I, I think that's what incentivizes people to adopt and assert a notion that on its face would seem so absurd uh, but it is so critical to so many people's faiths these days that it is something that they're they're willing to adopt, um, and that's what makes. <laughs> that's why when I come around and say, "Yeah, that's all crap," um, <laughs> they get very upset with me, <laughs> and it's and you know it's it's not an easy thing to overcome because and this is what the whole deconstruction movement is about. You have to take this framework of how the Bible is that has been constructed literally over centuries. And, you know, it takes a long time to learn that whole framework, but it is given to you in a specific way. And you have to take that framework and you can't just, you can't just annihilate it all at once. Um, that would be devastating for, for that person. You have to sit there and take it apart piece by piece and find the pieces that you think still belong and find the pieces that don't. And then reconstruct or, you know, reconstruct what you want to salvage from this or just leave it behind and move on. That's what deconstruction is about. And that's how you, I think that is how you take what the Renaissance, the Reformation, the Enlightenment, um, you know, 19th century debates about creationism and its relevance to slavery. What all of that has constructed and given to us, you have to, you know, deal with it piece by piece. Or or just throw your hands up and walk away, and uh, and most people, <laughs> that's that's a non-starter for most people. I really identify with your your coming back to the idea of trust. And I think a lot of the questions you probably get, whether it's about canon or translations, probably the root is when I open this, 
the version that I have in my lap, you know, like, can I, can I put my trust in it? You know what I mean? Um, and if there's a change in authorship or something, then that, that makes me a little bit nervous. Or if, or if there's a difficulty in translating a word or a passage or even a concept that makes me a little bit nervous about the, the amount of trust that I'm going to put in kind of in my, my version that I have, Mm -hmm. um, how do you address that that idea for what's the difference between maybe a an errant and a and a faithful text and when you compare maybe the hebrew scriptures to other near ancient texts or just any ancient text religious or otherwise how do you kind of convey the history and the and the scholarship to someone who who maybe is unfamiliar with with how that came to be and and how that compares to other documents. Mm. Well, one of the things that I do um, in an effort to to maintain the the data over dogma dogma is um, <laughs> <laughs> I I I try not to be someone's guide to maintaining a faithful perspective, and there are a number of reasons for that. Mm. Um, but folks like Pete Enns, I think, do a, a great job um, of of saying this is what critical scholarship does, but this is why we don't have to throw it all away. Mm -hmm. um, so, have, have y'all read his book, uh, "The Bible Tells Me So"? Uh, I've read how to, how the Bible works. How the Bible works. I've I've not actually read that one, but um, the Bible tells me so is is I think addresses that question. It says this is you know this is how we tend to think about the Bible, but scholarship would tell you that's not actually what is there for but that doesn't mean we have to throw it all away and yeah. and my approach has been to try to not differentiate uh the text from any other text that I would read approach it exactly as I would I would read any other text and see what comes out the other side and I know some folks who will take that and then will reconstruct the results a little differently um because they they take what I what I will say as, as kind of raw data and then say, well, here are the assumptions that I am willing to bring to this and reconstruct the text so that it serves their, um, their uh, theological interests. But one of the things that I, that I think we should all be aware of is that everybody is in a constant, well, everyone who approaches the Bible from a, a devotional um, confessional point of view is always in a process of renegotiation. Because every time they go to the Bible, they're going to it with a different set of frameworks. Because every new day that we put under our belts provides a new set of lenses with which to look at the world. And over the generations, groups have to reinterpret the text in order for it to remain relevant to them, in order for it to inform their experiences and help them look to the future. And that fun that happens on an individual level. It happens on a group level, um, and so we're we're always reconstructing our understanding of the Bible every time we approach it. Now we be, we may be you know the difference between how one person approaches it today and how they approach it tomorrow is going to be pretty negligible, but the difference between the way a teenager approaches the Bible and the way a mother of five approaches the Bible, or that teenager when they you know fifteen years down the road. Um, is going to be significant 
they don't have the same readings of the text because they're not looking at it through the same lenses and they are not wanting, they're not looking for the same uh, results mm. from the text. And so different lenses, different needs are going to produce different results. Um, so I, I think that I still approach everything in my, in, you know, on TikTok and things like that, in my public approach to the Bible, it is entirely... Um, critical. But for those who want to take it and do something confessional or devotional with it, understand that there's no way to approach it um, as a static text. It is inevitably, it is always a dynamic changing text that is, and we are in a, a constant process of renegotiating with it. It kind of makes me think of the, um, it seems like just recently you did a few videos about apologetics, and uh, yeah, I was I was, like, I was forced into it. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, apologetics was like my jam when I was yeah. when I was like in high school. You know, like anything like you like you said in your videos, um, it's all it's all built around finding one possible, maybe plausible thing, and then therefore that 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 like ends the discussion, and how. It seems like apologetics is an attempt to look at the scripture as this static thing and to come to it with almost nothing but dogma and then shape everything around that belief. Um, and I guess I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but it just, I, just made me, I saw well, drawing the connections there. Yeah. And, and I think that's, and I think that raises that, um, apologetics today is so much different from apologetics in the early church second, third, yeah. fourth century, because we we do have that binary now of this is either true or false. And as long as they can wedge that little sliver of not impossible in there, it means it's not false. Therefore, you know, it's the other thing. Yeah, uh, yeah, or at least there's the potential that it is the other thing. Yeah, and I, that, that's where I was going with it. It's this, this concept of the black and white of yeah. it's either right or it's wrong that kind of came along with the enlightenment and how it's it's so hard for us to, to put ourselves back in, in the mindset of somebody or a culture that does not always think that way or approaching reading a book as I, I guess I'm just I just every time I sit down with, with the Bible or a book about the Bible I it's like I spent half my time trying to peel away the way the things I was told about the Bible mm -hmm. and about scripture and how how holy that those words are and how they are directly from the word of God and God guided the pen of the authors and all that stuff and trying to at, at what at the same time read those things try try to read those things critically and study and and learn from people like you but then also be okay with with the fact that 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 doesn't preclude some of the supernatural stuff. I mean, just because I can't prove it doesn't mean it necessarily is not there. And it it just it's just this constant um like running in circles. It seems like, and I and I've talked <laughs> to a lot of a lot of Christians who feel a similar way, especially the quote unquote deconstructing folks. Mm -hmm trying to figure out where the Bible, like what's the Bible good for, <laughs> you know, because we, we <laughs> yeah. do have the sense to just toss it out. Yeah. And, and I think that's one of the, another 
vestige of the Reformation is this reduction of religion to a question of, are your propositions true? Yeah. Which is something that I, that I talked about um, a while ago, because in the cognitive science of religion, not only can you not really distill down religion to any um, essence, but there are so many different dimensions of religion and experience and phenomenology for so many different people that to just say, well, it, it's either true or false is a, a non sequitur. It totally misses the mark because there are plenty of people out there who are uh, faithful practitioners of a religion who are 100% atheists. Um, I have... Uh, some good friends who are uh, 100% atheists and Jewish and participate in um, all of the celebrations, all the rites, light the candles and say the prayers and do everything and are 100% atheists. Uh, And to reduce religion to is your set of propositions true is... I think a remarkably myopic approach that serves the the structuring of power yeah. of um, folks engaged on both sides of this, but I, I think does an incredible injustice to the folks who are living their religion for any one of a variety of different um, you know combinations of reasons. And so I, I know folks who approach the Bible not because they think it has inerrant truths in it but because of the way it makes them feel hmm. or because it reminds them of uh, things that, you know, are important to them, whether or not these are, you know, literally historical or true, it's important to them. And, uh, and they like that feeling and people will dismiss that say, you know, that's not, uh, that's not a valid foundation for a worldview, but, you know, nobody really has the authority to say what you are and are not allowed to build your worldview off of as long as, you know, as long as you're not hurting people, which unfortunately a lot of people are. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's as long as you're not hurting people is it is an important um, asterisk there. And it's almost like yeah, saying, yeah. Is, it, is it true that you should love your neighbor as yourself is a question that, you know, is it meaningful that you should love your neighbor as yourself? You could certainly answer, I could make a lot more money if I don't love my neighbor as myself, or I, I yeah. could be a lot oh, yeah. more happy if I don't love my neighbor as myself. Um, yeah, and uh, and who precisely is this neighbor that we're talking about, anyway? <laughs> where where can I draw the line? Mm-hmm. Yeah, anything but sim- whatever a Samaritan is, uh, is where I draw the line. <laughs> I know soon the sun will break through and I'll feel your light. I've saved, I don't know if you do have this, Steve, but I saved a couple of pet questions that I have any time I get to talk to a biblical scholar just so that I can answer the the, the weird, interesting things that I have. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So this, I'm going to do this one, and it I might be completely off base, so feel free to, to knock me off of my pedestal, Dan. Um, <laughs> so as a Westerner, I, I have this belief that just like your average person out there, in the West, 
tends to think that God looks like Zeus in AKA Monty Python and the Holy Grail God. Mm-hmm. And my question is, my comment is, let's see which one I should say first. What did Israelites think about God when they pictured God? And did they think God looked like a cow? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, yeah, that's, uh, that was the topic of my second master's thesis. Uh, when they, when they, how did they conceptualize deity? Mm. And I, I, uh, whittled it down to two main, what I call divine profiles. Uh, and this is based on the initial distinction between Adonai and El. Uh, but El was, if we take the Ugaritic literature, if we take uh, some of the other surrounding literature as drawn from the same kind of sociocultural matrix, if we can use that as an analogy with which to add flesh to kind of the skeletal descriptions that we get in the Bible, we can reconstruct El as a patriarchal high deity who had, you know, a long flowing beard and white hair and was benevolent and kind. Uh, and, you know, from the Ugaritic literature, uh, also was uh, uh, a philanderer uh, and uh, liked to get drunk. But I don't know that that all transfers to the Bible. <laughs> but uh, we we picture El as uh, an older patriarchal figure with a long beard and long white hair seated on a throne. And then the Adonai profile is based more closely on uh, Baal, one of the uh, sons of El, who was a warrior figure, a storm deity, and their disposition was represented by violent weather. And so they were youthful, they were virile, uh, and they were a warrior. So this figure in the uh, in some of the material media that has survived is frequently represented in a standing, striding pose. So one foot in front of the other with one hand raised. They call it the smiting pose. Uh, and they would have had a mace in their hand. And so... These two different profiles contribute to the understanding of Adonai as, um, as it says in Exodus 15, a, a warrior, a man of war, Ish Milchama. Uh, but it also contributes to the idea of uh, God as your father who created you, who made you, as we see in uh, Deuteronomy 32.6. And the animal side of this is is interesting because it's one thing to tell stories about these figures who are way off in, you know, the Northlands or in the heavens or wherever uh, doing all these things, but it's a lot nicer to have something nearby that we can see. Uh, and so there is anthropomorphic imagery that we find in a lot of the nations surrounding Israel, but by the first millennium BCE, anthropomorphic imagery seems to have faded away, so they use standing stones and um, clay figurines and things like that. But one of the ways that you represented these animals was with this symbolic animal. Uh, ostriches, uh, scorpions, cows, oxen. And so the ox was kind of a symbol of both El and Adonai. It was a symbol of El because oxes and bulls, oxes, oxen, you know, like boxing, um, <laughs> 
oxen and bulls were uh, were very fertile and virile. So uh, you have in the Ugaritic literature, bull L is someone who arouses women. Uh, so a bull is fertile and virile in that sense, but a bull is also ferocious. So that's how the bull can also be related to Adonai's divine profile, uh, the warrior profile. And so they become a pedestal symbol. So they are represented um, on top of that animal, riding that animal in some, uh, in some iconography. Uh, and, but they can also be absent, and the animal can still represent their presence. And this is one of the things that the Ark of the Covenant does, because God is the one who dwells between the cherubim, which are above the Ark. So the Ark is kind of the throne. And so the throne can be empty, but can still represent God's presence uh, and reify God's presence. And I've talked about how we sometimes use headstones the same way. If we visit a deceased loved one in a cemetery, um, people will frequently talk to the headstone as kind of an index for that person's um, agency or personhood. Uh, and this is the exact same um, kind of intuitive logic that accounts for divine images. And so the bull, as a symbol of the deity, can um, intuitively kind of manifest the presence of the deity. And, and those intuitions become conventionalized in the rituals uh, and so, and that is the subject of the book I have coming out later this year. Well, I, um, I need to I'll, buy that book, I think. <laughs> well, it'll be uh, open access. So uh, you, you'll be able to download a PDF for free. Wow. Wow. What's, what's, when's that coming out? Uh, so the, it's called Deity and Divine Agency in the Hebrew Bible, Cognitive Perspectives. It's being published by SBL Press, Society of Biblical Literature Press. And I'm hoping it comes out in, in 2022, but COVID has delayed the, mm. the publisher quite a bit. And so they've had to push things back. So I am um, worried that it's going to be maybe Q1 of 2023. So... But uh, don't worry, everyone will be made well aware uh, when it is <laughs> when it is forthcoming. Well, one question that I had um, kind of goes along with a little bit with what you were getting at just now. So, first of all, uh, I forgive you for destroying most of my childhood. <laughs> uh, but you know, well, you're the only one. I get a lot of <laughs> you destroyed my childhood. <laughs> yeah. So, growing up in in a church, you know, Bible Bible class twice a week and all this stuff and memorize all this, all these things. And so as, as kids, we tend to learn a lot about the old Testament mm -hmm. and Nathan and I have discussed like how bizarre that is, that that's what we choose to teach kids. Um, but yeah. I've one, one kind of thread that I keep picking up on in, in a lot of the, the things that you talk about just because it connects to so many things. It's like a web is is the how how authorship of some of these old older books in the in the Bible are like not just disputed, but it's like maybe multiple authors and like one like Isaiah is maybe written by different people and over different mm -hmm. time periods and um and what has shocked me most is the development of like how you can actually see the development of the concept of Judaism and and 
Adonai and all these things throughout scripture and how it's like, how did we not see that? Um, Mm -hmm. And the fact, and how you like the theory that Josiah at the time of Josiah, that's when Deuteronomy was written. It's like as though it was before time. Mm -hmm. So is, or is there a source of, of anything anywhere about like, here's like the, the chronological by writing date list of the scriptures. I've I've heard uh, I've heard people talk about that before. What would the Bible look like if we arranged it all according to when we think it was written? And and I don't think I've ever seen anything published like that. But there are um, there are different publications that will. Um, there's one, for instance, uh, that color codes the sources of the Pentateuch mm. according to you know J E D and P. And and that doesn't change the arrangement, and you know there are a lot of different subdivisions within that. But there are some cool projects that are going on right now. A friend of mine is is putting together a uh, a tool. It will be an online tool that will let you. They're starting with the priestly document, so it's basically provides the whole priestly document on its own. Um, so all the chapter and verse numbers stay the same but it skips over everything that is not a part of p and then it's it's a digital text and you can go through and and they have text highlighted with notes about why this is there uh and so that's that's probably the closest to that kind of thing that i've seen and that's still in kind of the beta testing phase uh that'll be out soon but yeah, that's that's a. I think that's a gap that uh, a number of people have noticed. Yeah, um, and it's. I'm, I'm not 100 percent sure how useful it would be. It's more of out of curiosity for me, just because, you know, I've growing up my entire life believing that the things in like the the Pentateuch specifically are mm-hmm. that's how they happened in history, and yeah. lots of glossing over the the things that don't align and that kind of thing. Like, and I think one of the problems with this is that if you did divide up everything according to kind of the most widespread scholarly theories, there would be a lot of widows and orphans. Mm. In other words, there would be a lot of things that would be extracted from their context that were editorial editions that only made sense because they were being stuck into a context. And so they would not make sense if you just saw these two words out here. Um, <laughs> yeah, maybe it's just a, maybe what I'm looking for is just a heavily annotated text. Yeah, and and there are um, I think Friedman did uh, did his I think it's called the Bible with sources revealed, mm, okay. where he color coded the the different sources, but the. Yeah, if, if it helps you imagine it at all, the the earliest writings are are pieces of poetry. So Deuteronomy thirty two, Deuteronomy thirty three, Judges five, Psalm sixty eight, maybe Exodus fifteen, maybe Genesis forty nine. These are these are pieces of poetry that scholars are pretty sure based on linguistic evidence and based on the picture of Israel that they paint that scholars believe you know maybe second millennium BCE maybe before the time of a historical um, you know David or Solomon yeah 
But uh, yeah, if you trying to get uh, more detailed than that, like Judges five, the Song of Deborah, you can you can divide it up. But there's still you know scholars who are like verse twenty three is not a part of this, <laughs> and um, you know you've got very kind of detailed uh, arguments about you know this word should be over here and this verse is you know was added later, and sometimes it gets pretty ridiculous. But yeah, it would be, um, there have been attempts to kind of peel apart the earliest parts of Genesis, which would be parts of the Jacob cycle. And then there are other attempts to peel apart the earliest parts of Deuteronomy. So like Deuteronomy 12 through 24, many people think is, and and a few fragments around that many people think is the core of Deuteronomy that was uh, added to later. So, but, but yeah, you don't have a place where you can, you know, read all that all together. You just have these monographs where people make these um, very tedious arguments. Yeah, I think the reason I, <laughs> as I'm thinking about it now, I think the reason I'm looking for that is one thing that did kind of shake me for a while was this entire concept of monotheism not in the Bible and mm-hmm. the conflation of El and Adonai and... Um, I I think it'd be nice for me to, I, w- I want to sit down and figure out how that happened and kind of watch the progression of that. Yeah, and that's actually a, a book I'm working on right now that, um, that TikTok actually inspired. Um, I'm working on a book that will be a, um, I don't know exactly what I'm going to call it yet, but it will basically be uh, God, a life, mm. <laughs> where I will talk about the earliest conceptualizations of deity that we find and then how they changed, how they grew, how they developed from the earliest parts of the Hebrew Bible all the way through to the end of the New Testament and talk about what we think contributed to these changes that we see in the in the text. Mm. So you can follow the trajectory of the development of the conceptualization of God from beginning to end. And I'm, I'm, I want to make this for a, ver- uh, for a popular audience um, not a you know not a scholarly monograph, but something that you could get on Audible or something. That'd like be that. great. So, yeah, I'm working on that. It is um, it is a lot of fun, but also very challenging. Count us in as non scholarly audience testing. I, I, can, I can totally <laughs> do that. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I think a cool thing to do uh, would be as I'm as I'm getting to the end, you know, get some folks from uh, from. TikTok or Instagram or elsewhere to uh, to help you know read early drafts for me and give me feedback. Sign me up <laughs> because because I have to I have to take those very tedious arguments and then I have to make them uh, easy for uh, lay readers to understand and and I I think I'm developing a knack for that. Got any final thoughts, Nathan? I was just going to say my favorite part of this whole interview is when Napoleon Dynamite had a strong opinion uh, on the song of Deborah. <laughs> what? <laughs> you'll you'll hear it when you go back later. Verse 23 is not a part of this. <laughs> <laughs> this has been fantastic, Dan. Thank you so much for uh what you're doing. It's good to have police on TikTok. I'm not on TikTok. I'm too I'm too uh I'm a Luddite. Um <laughs> But I appreciate that, that there are people like you doing the good work uh, out there. Well, that, that means a lot. I appreciate hearing that. Thank you. Yeah, and uh, once again, a reminder for where everybody can find you. You're pretty much McClellan 
with the K everywhere, right? Yeah. So, uh, yep, pretty much everywhere. M-A-K-L-E-L-A-N. Yeah, and you're starting to put longer stuff on YouTube as well, right? I am. Yeah, that's this is a challenge. Uh, getting into into TikTok was a challenge in and of itself, and then getting into YouTube, and now I've got a, I'm you know trying to get this better equipment going, and now I've got to learn how to edit video, mm -hmm. and I have absolutely no idea what I'm doing there, but uh, I. I don't know if you've noticed or if anybody's noticed, but every single one of my videos, there's something that I learned that week <laughs> that I have added to the video. <laughs> and it is basic, basic stuff. Like if I took a course, I the first week I'd already be well beyond where I am right now. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it sounds like uh, YouTube is going to be the way to kind of uh, get more, develop uh, kind of broader longer term arguments and discussions good i'm looking forward to those we shall see and one day maybe in the in the future monetization becomes yeah a reality because tiktok is evidently the worst in the world yeah i have not heard good things about that i was gonna say five million <laughs> views and there's not monetization what well no i was uh I tried to join their creator fund shortly before that, but like they want, you know, tax information and all this kind of stuff. And it pr was processing for like four months. Whoa. And so that was when I got this enormous, uh, you know, 5 million views video. And I was like, why can't I get, <laughs> why couldn't I have been monetizing doing that uh, then? And now, now ever since it's, you know, I, I make like 50 cents a day. So. <laughs> You know, I get to I get to go out to a, a mid-range lunch every month <laughs> nice. because of TikTok. Nice. So, <laughs> you know, well, live in the dream. Exactly. Thank you for your service, sir. <laughs> <laughs> hey, thanks for listening. We hope you got something out of the episode today. Check the show notes in your podcast app for all the links and references that were made. Or you can find it all at followingthefire.com. If you'd like to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash followingthefire to become a patron. And of course, we'd love it if you rate the podcast and share it with others. See you later. And I'll give you all my heart. Don't you know it's all I have? Even on my heart Can't compare with what you're worth I have been running Almost all my life But you, you always chase me down